we've got a lot of content here, but first, I'd like to introduce the individuals who are going to take us through the content. We have Bill Kastner, Solutions Architect at ProServe IT, and Karen McGregor, Azure, Azure Sherpa at Microsoft Canada. Welcome, Bill and Karen. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. We have a large group and a fair bit of content, as I mentioned. You'll notice on the right-hand side in the control panel, a questions tab. As we go through the content, I encourage everyone to ask questions or post questions in that space, as we're going to take some time towards the end and answer a handful of them. And if it, at the end we haven't addressed your question, we can certainly take those offline in email following. So let's, uh, let's get started here. I think we can all agree that these are unprecedented times. Individuals and businesses alike have had to make significant decisions rapidly, not the least of which is how to address delivering remote work experiences. Edu education institutions are in need of a solid, highly available platform that can provide their staff and students with the secure access they need to distance learning resources. Bill and Karen are going to show you how Microsoft's Windows Virtual Desktop can meet that challenge head on, whether you're delivering applications access or a full desktop experience. For this, I'm going to turn it over to the experts. Take it away, Bill and Karen. Thanks, Mark. And good afternoon, everyone. So from an agenda perspective today, uh, we're going to walk through the introductions. Uh, we're going to walk through what Windows Virtual Desktop as a solution looks like, and provide a demo of the Windows Virtual Desktop experience, discuss recent updates to WVD, and then finish off with some Q&A. So when we look at Windows Virtual Desktop, specifically within the, the education space, um, there's a couple key values that, that are, are worth mentioning. First is that it allows you to provide um, secure access to labs, VMs, and applications to students across the internet from anywhere, any device, anytime. Um, this means it's, you know, as, as Mark mentioned, given the times we're in now, this is especially important as you know, a number of institutions are obviously working with, with the remote learning initiatives. Um, this solution provides a, a clean and elegant solution to provide uh, your users uh, or your students rather and, and faculty where necessary uh, access to the resources they need to be successful. Based off of the Azure infrastructure, we're able to deploy VDI in a matter of minutes uh, versus days or longer in some instances and leverage the existing licensing that a, that a number of institutions already have around the M365, A3, and A5 educational licensing. Students are able to show up with BYOD uh, devices and access their applications or student desktops with almost no interaction from, from uh, your IT staff. Uh, because we don't have any dependencies on the actual endpoint other than users being able to log in, um, this reduces the burden on IT to support this and makes it far easier for students to be able to join the, the required sessions. Lastly, you're able to continue to use existing hardware investments that you've made on-prem um, and tie back to that on-prem infrastructure through the, through the uh, Windows Virtual Desktop interface um, and also take advantage of some of the unique features that WVD or Azure brings to market, such as cloud-based GPUs for uh, departments that require that functionality. So when we look at Windows Virtual Desktop, uh, first and foremost, it's worth noting this is a, a Microsoft Azure-based solution for VDI. So Microsoft has historically had remote desktop services and terminal services solutions, uh, but this is really their first um, full-blown VDI-based uh, VDI solution, and it is a cloud uh, Azure-dependent solution. 
Um, so while we do tie back to on-prem resources and infrastructure, we do require Azure uh, an Azure subscription and Azure services to be able to support the solution. This solution allows you to support students and faculty with a range of options from pooled and personal desktops, as well as remote application publishing. One of the key benefits of WVD is because it is an Azure-based solution, um, and that means a number of the uh, surrounding uh, requirements, which we'll, we'll dive into, are being supported by Microsoft. There's minimal infrastructure to set up. Um, it's quick and easy to, to get this infrastructure up and running. Um, and because we work in a consumption model, we're only paying for resources we consume, uh, we're able to influence what the, the ongoing cost of the infrastructure looks like. We're also able to, to take advantage of existing uh, security management solutions that you have in place for Active Directory and Azure Active Directory. Uh, these include things such as group policy management, uh, Windows management tools for patching, updating, and monitoring, and allows you to leverage the existing strengths you have in Active Directory and Azure Active Directory management. So when we look at WVD concepts, um, as mentioned, this is an Azure solution. So the entire infrastructure is, is running in that Azure subscription that's dedicated to you as, as an organization. Uh, we spin up our, our virtual machine infrastructure there. We consume all of our resources, so memory, CPU, and disk is consumed in that Azure space. And then over a secure HTTPS connection, we're able to provide the, the endpoint experience to our users whether they're on a desktop, mobile device, tablet, uh, whatever form factor they so choose, they're then able to consume these Azure resources um, through this through screen redirection, which means we're not leveraging any memory, CPU, or disk uh, requirements on the endpoint. All those resources are running in Azure, and we're just essentially doing a screen share to the local endpoint. When we look at the technical te technical innovations, uh, excuse me, included in WVD, uh, a couple definitely of note. So first and foremost, this is a multi-user Windows 10 environment, uh, which makes this unique. Um, so historically, you know, for us to get a multi-session environment, typically we were dependent on server-based operating systems, so things like remote desktop services to provide that in order to allow us to scale infrastructure or, or scale users onto existing infrastructure and get a, a better user density. With the introduction of Windows Virtual Desktop, we now have multi-user Windows 10 that allows us to move away from dedicated uh, personal VMs for those students or faculty that have acquired uh, a full-blown Windows 10 desktop. We're able to move away from those individual desktops and instead work in a consolidated model where we're able to get much better resource utilization and reduce the administration required by IT. With traditional on-prem solutions, there's typically a, a bunch of surrounding infrastructure that needs to be deployed to support the VDI infrastructure or the VDI desktops. These often, often include gateways and brokers, uh, licensing servers, um, things of that nature. All these typically needed to be deployed in order to actually support your, your VDI-style solution. But because this is an Azure-based solution, we're able to eliminate a lot of that complexity and leverage Microsoft uh, Platform as a Service for PaaS offerings to provide those same web access gateway broker and diagnostic services without actually having to deploy infrastructure to support that. We support a full range of, of varying clients. Um, so there is a, a full remote desktop client available in iOS, Android, and Windows, as well as an HTML5 client, which allows us to support um, other platforms as well. And this provides a user a rich um, experience either through the web browser or through the, the remote desktop client to access both their uh, applications as well as their published desktops. 
Lastly, through the acquisition of FS Logics, uh, Microsoft is able to introduce a profile management solution that helps us move away from a number of the challenges we've seen with VDI solutions in the past. Uh, because we had, in this scenario, we're able to take our user profile information and abstract it from the actual uh, Windows 10 image itself, store it separately on a VHD that gets mounted at login, we're able to provide a seamless and fast experience where users have immediate access to all of their locally cached information, such as Outlook OST files and OneDrive cache and things of that nature. Rather than having to build these on the fly as your user logs in, they're just immediately accessible to users, which allows them to be immediately productive. So when we look at the architecture end end, as mentioned, so we start with our, our endpoint devices, uh, be it phone, tablet, or PC, uh, based off of any of our you know, commonly accessed uh, OS environments. Um, we're able to support that. That then ties back into our Azure PaaS or platform as a service offering, where we have all of our broker and gateway services. That in turn ties back into your personal Azure subscription. We're able to host the information that's relevant to you. So this is where you build your desktop environments, your application environments, as well as your user profile um, storage locations, be it file server, Azure blob storage, or, or wherever you so choose. Um, through extending the Azure environment to your on-prem environment through VPN or Express Route, we're then able to access additional Active Directory services, as well as all the application and file services that are necessary to provide the users and students and staff the access to the resources they, that they require. So we talk about Windows Virtual Desktop, um, you know, what makes it unique? First and foremost, as mentioned, it is now it is now possible to run Windows 10 in a multi-user environment. Um, this gives users the benefits of the full-blown Windows 10 desktop without the um, constraints that we sometimes see with, with publishing server-based uh, desktop environments. Users get that rich, full-blown Windows 10 experience but we're able to take advantage of this multi-user uh, scenario to allow us to stack users on a given VM, which gives us a much greater user density and a much more cost-effective solution to provide the service. Because this is an Azure-based infrastructure, um, as any of you who know have built Azure services in the past or, or VMs, there is a wide range of service offerings with varying CPU uh, and memory requirements, as well as some VMs that have embedded GPUs for, for CAD type applications or other engineering applications. All of these are available to you to host as Windows 10 desktops. So there's a wide range of options available to you to build out the infrastructure that best supports your specific needs. Because of this is Windows 10 at its core, we have binary compatibility with all Windows 10 applications. Um, so anything that runs in your Windows 10 environment today on-prem should run in this multi-user session with no additional work required. As highlighted previously, this is an Azure-based solution. So while we do rely on dependencies on things like local Active Directory and such, uh, we do need that Azure subscription in place and this infrastructure does need to run in Azure. There is no ability to take Windows Virtual Desktop in its in its current form and, and move it to an on-prem solution and, and run it from there. Um, we do require that Azure infrastructure to, to leverage the solution. And lastly, as highlighted, because it is Windows 10, you can continue to manage this the same way you do all of your traditional desktops. All the same tools, all the same management and monitoring capabilities that you rely on today to support your, your traditional user community can also be applied to the Windows Virtual Desktop environment. So as talked about, one of the key things that, that WVD introduces is that concept of multi-session. Multi 
Um, so for those users who have required traditional uh, full-blown Windows desktop operating system environments in, in VDI, typically that's been built in a one-to-one -one ratio, where a user is allocated a personal dedicated desktop um, with all of their, their profile settings, all of their applications. Um, and this has often been important because, again, as we move out to the cloud and leverage things like Office 365, in order to, order to provide a, a performance solution, we typically need to cache a lot of information locally. Um, and so historically, we've looked to build out individual personalized desktops for each user. What we often see is that these VMs are typically uh, largely underutilized. Um, you know, user consumption is typically rather low on, on these machines, again, dependent upon what workloads that user is looking at running. But it also introduces um, desktop sprawl, where we now have a, a large number of, of desktops that we need to support. Um, for each of these user communities. So it, it typically adds additional burden on IT to be able to you know, monitor, patch, and manage the solution. By moving to Windows Virtual Desktop, because we're able to take advantage of this multi-use functionality, we're able to build a smaller server pool or, or desktop pool, uh, allocate a higher number of resources to that particular VM, and then stack users on, on the VM itself. Um, this allows us to get a much higher resource density on a particular VM and make sure that we're maximizing utilization while also reducing the number of desktops that we need to support, uh, which again, makes it a little bit easier for, from an IT perspective to have to monitor, match, monitor, patch, and manage this infrastructure. When we talk about licensing, as, as highlighted previously, many customers already have entitlement for Windows Virtual Desktop. Uh, for those of you, you know, obviously being in the education space, you know, provided, provided, excuse me, provided you have Microsoft E365, that's been all day. As long as you have Microsoft 365, A3 or A5 or student use benefits, or your Windows 10 education A3 or A5 SKUs, you have all the licensing required to support Windows Virtual Desktop. If you are a remote desktop services customer today and have an existing on-prem solution, as long as you have RDS CALS with software assurance, you again are entitled to uh, transition that on-prem RDS infrastructure to, to Azure and leverage Windows Virtual Desktop for your server-based workloads. The only additional cost outside of this comes down to Azure consumption uh, based off of the actual utilization that we, that we require at any given point in time. And that's one of the values, I think, of, of the Windows Virtual Desktop solution. Because it is Azure-based, we're not needing to pre-purchase pre you know, or make large investments in hardware infrastructure not necessarily understanding you know, where we need to use them or how frequently that, you know, that peak load is actually gonna be utilized. Because this is a virtual infrastructure running in Azure, we're able to scale up and scale down as needed, and we're only paying for the resources we're consuming at any given point in time. So this slide walks through a couple different pricing scenarios. Um, so as mentioned, this is, you know, we've talked about licensing, this is really the consumption side of the business or the conversation. We have four different, um, workloads available here, all based off of 100 concurrent users. Our top example is a heavy graphics workload. So these would be VMs that actually have the embedded GPUs required for CAD and, and CAM and, and those types of applications. As we work our way down the page, you'll see we go from a heavy workload, medium to light, all of them based on the 100 concurrent users. You can see off on the right-hand side, we have a couple different pricing options and how this actually gets um, gets uh, paid for, the first being pay as you go, which is where we're paying just on a traditional monthly cycle. So as we consume resources, we're just paying for them on that per minute billing cycle. 
Alternatively, Microsoft is, uh, does provide a, a, an additional payment mechanism called a reserved instance. So for infrastructure, you know that's going to be running uh, for a continued period of time. You have the ability to leverage what's called a reserved instance, um, where basically you are pre-committing to that resource for either a one or a three-year term. Uh, in the past, it, there was a requirement to pay for the entire term on day one. Um, so a one-year reserved instance, you'd be paying that entire year up front but you would see significant savings anywhere 40 to 45%. On a three-year reserved instance, your savings can climb as much as 50% or higher. Um, one of the things Microsoft has introduced in the last couple months is the ability to take reserved instances and shift it back to a monthly payment cycle. So you're now able to take advantage of all the cost savings that a reserved instance introduces without having to pay that large capital uh, investment up front. This makes it far more cost-effective for organizations who want to deploy uh, virtual desktop infrastructure in the most economical fashion possible. Uh, one thing I will note here is this is USD pricing, sample pricing. So obviously mileage may, may vary a little bit for those of us on the, on the Canadian side of the border. Uh, but this is a good example, I think, you know, when we look at a per student cost of each of these workloads of roughly what we'd be looking at. So along with licensing in this, this really comprises the entire investment required to have Windows Virtual Desktop running in your environment. So with that, we're going to step into Windows Virtual uh, Desktop updates. So for any of you who might have explored Windows Virtual Desktop in the past, again, we, that has been general availability since September of last year. Um, anybody who, who has tried to work with the technology in, through a proof of concept or, or pilot, sort of prior, prior to end of April, will know that the experience left a little bit to be desired. It was very PowerShell heavy. Um, you know, you had to be very comfortable in, in that PowerShell experience in order to be able to build and manage that solution. Uh, on April 30th, Microsoft introduced their, their Windows Virtual Desktop version 2.0, which gives us uh, proper full Azure integration. So where before we needed to rely on PowerShell for management and deployment, this is now a fully integrated experience into the Azure, uh, Azure Portal Manager or, or ARM. Uh, we now have a dedicated uh, blade to Windows Virtual Desktop management, which makes it significantly easier for deployment and management of that solution. Along with that, in, in the spring update, we were also able to get the, uh, the ability to now deploy um, applications and desktops to user groups versus individual users, which was another off-requested feature, as well as the ability to support a robust access control for management. Um, lastly, we also have the uh, integrated portal uh, for, for monitoring capabilities, so we're able to take advantage of Azure Native Log Analytics, which was something that was missing prior. The next thing I'd like to talk about is, is how we manage applications in Windows Virtual Desktop. So as highlighted elsewhere in the, in the presentation, um, you know, we are able to leverage existing management tool sets, and that includes things like SCCM or Intune. So if you as an organization uh, publish your applications through SCCM or Intune, that's a fully supported mechanism here within WVD as well. You can deploy your SCCM agent or, or Intune um, management agent, excuse me, and then continue to publish applications to these desktops, the same as you would traditional on-prem desktops. As well, those organizations who look to embed applications inside of, of their images, that's a supported model as well. You can take those existing old images you've already deployed, you can in, import them into Azure, and then publish host pools based off of those desktops. If you, as an organization, have chosen to overburden desktops or images, i.e. you've loaded applications for, for multiple user communities. Um, through that FS Logics acquisition I mentioned previously, we do have the ability to do app masking. 
So if, if that's your continued path forward, you can, through FSLogic, hide the applications that aren't rele relevant to a given user uh, versus having them sort of ignore them, which gives you a little more flexibility in how you manage that. So those are all great solutions, um, but they are also more historical solutions. They're how we've managed things in the past. With the introduction of Windows Virtual Desktop, uh, Microsoft has also introduced a new mechanism, which is an MSIX application packaging format along with AppAttach, which allows us a, a new mechanism for, for deploying applications inside of VMs. So as mentioned, MSIX is a packaging format. It supports XE, MSI, uh, ClickOnce, AFI, all these types of applications. Um, the key benefit here is, while we do go through a traditional install process on the application, um, the applications themselves don't get uh, included as part of the, the image. All that install process redirects the, the bits for the application into a separate VHD, and that VHD gets attached at login. The benefit here is because this application is stored outside of the VM, it means that it's a declarative install with a, a clean uninstall. There's no registry bits, there's no leftover artifacts, because the applications themselves are never truly a part of the image. They're all self-contained. Uh, it makes it very simple for packaging and deployment, as well as updating that application over time, because we only have one instance of that application stored externally to the image. We just need to update that, that application package uh, as required, and as users log in, they'll immediately see the, the new package available to them. Applications are installed on a per-use basis, so only the users that actually have that application available to them as part of their, their default load will actually see that application appear as part of their desktop experience. Because the applications are stored externally in a, in a VHD file, it does provide tamper protection, as again, these applications are never truly part of the operating system. Um, this solution is sort of the go-forward mechanism that, that Microsoft recommends for, for WVD. MSIX uh, and AppAttach is, I believe, still in, in public preview at this point, but will be nearing G general availability as well. But this is a, a fantastic approach to provide a, a seamless and elegant experience for end users while also reducing the overall administration to support uh, this type of a solution. So with that, I'm actually gonna walk through an app attached process leveraging MSIX. Uh, so we can see our user here. Um, so she logs in initially into that WVD session. Um, that user is gonna authenticate and then obtain a WVD feed or Windows Virtual Desktop feed. The broker is going to assign her a virtual machine out of the host pool that she's been associated with. And then once that's been completed, um, the FSLogic will actually load that user profile from that external VHD disk. Next, WVD will read the applications that are assigned to that user and then associate given applications. So as once the user logs into their desktop, they're presented with a unified desktop experience. Um, it looks and feels like their traditional desktop does. It has all the user profile information, again, including you know their cached OST files and things of that nature, all of their applications. It all works seamlessly together and, and looks and behaves like a traditional desktop where all these things would have been natively deployed. But we're able to take advantage of the benefit of the fact that these are actually abstracted objects that we can then manage independently outside of the image, which gives us a much greater degree of flexibility in how we manage uh, desktops and users moving forward. So looking at it from another perspective, so again, traditional application delivery versus MSIX app attach. Uh, so in our traditional um, VDI model, we typically be relying on personal desktops where we'd have dedicated images for each user, um, each stored with their own local profile information, 
loaded with common applications and then departmental or vertical specific applications. This obviously gets into a, a larger and more unwieldy environment as it increases the number of images and VMs that we need to be able to support on an ongoing basis. As we flip to the MSIX app attach process, you can see in this scenario, we're able to maintain just a single gold image because none of our information is actually stored there. So as a user logs in, we're having our user profile that gets applied uh, through that FSLogix user profile roaming. We're able to then leverage MSIX app attach to embed uh, common applications, as well as the departmental specific departmental applications to build that custom desktop for each user individually. The benefit here is the user never needs to have logged into this particular workstation before. Because this information is all stored external, when a user logs into a desktop, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time they've logged into the desktop, the experience is exactly the same because this is all being built on the fly in a very quick fashion and builds that custom uh, experience just for that one specific user. Um, so with that, I'm gonna pass things back over to Karen again. She's gonna talk a little bit about the differences between Windows Virtual Desktop and Azure Lab Services. That's great. And Bill, you've covered a whole bunch of stuff. There's some nice, great questions in the, in the uh, question panel. We're looking forward to answering them, please um, please go ahead, ask questions uh, as you have them, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, get into them right after we wrap up the content. So Azure Lab Services and Windows Virtual Desktop, lots of lively conversation about that in the last little while. So Azure Lab Services was really built from the ground up for education scenarios. Think about that as basically VMs, that are wrapped with things like policies and automation. So I'm taking a VM, I'm setting a policy on who can have access, so there's permissioning, there's automation, and there's startup and shutdown automation wrapped around it. But it's a single VM per user. That's the core differentiator for uh, lab services. It will, you know, these are foundationally not managed VMs. We don't have the concept of things like SCCM to manage those uh, VMs or patch them because we're only using them for a short amount of time. Uh, and of course, those could be Linux or Windows VMs. We, we don't need anything special to deploy Linux out there. Um, from a login perspective, the other thing that's pretty interesting with lab services is that you can give a user access to a VM as a as an admin user. So that's a great fit for some of the more advanced um, labs where you want, say, a, a student to install some software, or do some tests, maybe even something with nested virtualization. So I could have multiple VMs hosted inside of a large VM, and I want the student to go through some specific tasks as an admin. That's a great fit for lab services. Um, it also has lab services a very unique role for an instructor or for an, instruction, an instructional technician when it comes to the idea of creating labs. So you create a lab by picking an image. You may install some software on it. You do that manually because we're installing a, a few pieces, although we could create a, a, a shared image for that and persist a, a customized image, you can absolutely do that. But the idea of picking a, picking a VM, 
doing some customization, publishing it to students, setting things like schedules for those labs so they're only available, say, between 10 and noon on Tuesdays and Thursdays because that aligns to a, a class, even if that class is virtual, or setting something like a quota on a VM in a lab to say this student has access outside the, uh, the class schedule, but only for a certain number of hours, maybe 10 hours to complete a lab. So those are all the ways that Lab Services works. Lab Services works to manage and limit the costs and make it easy to deploy and set up. When we flip that around to Windows Virtual Desktop, it's a little different. You can see it's more like making a service available on an ongoing basis and using automation and scale up, scale down to ensure the capacity is there. But it's a service you're going to run on a more or less ongoing basis. You certainly heard Bill talk about session density. So I'm going to have one VM with lots of users stacked up on that VM versus one-to-one -one with lab services. And the process, although we've optimized it tremendously in terms of publishing applications and assigning them to users, it still is mostly an IT-driven sort of uh, experience versus a lab services environment where you could clearly delegate a lot of that scale up or that, that experience to less of a core IT audience because it's a much simpler experience. What we find is that customers, who, especially in education, who are trying to think about this process of publishing applications, publishing desktops, publishing labs, are doing a bit of a triage. So if I've got maybe a, um, a, a, a lab that uses a tremendous amount of resources, it's one of those heavy, um, heavy user activity, uh, user resources, I should say, lab experiences, Maybe that's a good fit for lab services because I can simply give a user a fairly powerful VM and they have full access to that throughout the running of the lab versus maybe setting up a shared environment where I'm going to be running some fairly beefy labs on an ongoing basis. So what I've heard from different organizations is, you know, we take some of our media labs, some of our more high intensity um, labs will deliver those through lab services, will focus on delivering maybe more um, focused labs where they're a little bit less resource intense, do those through Windows Virtual Desktop. So it will be that balance of, of those different services. And I mean, we are Microsoft. We can, we want you to have the flexibility to deploy these solutions. And so you're going to see those, each of those environments. Um, getting better, developing, and becoming rich services. And we want you to have the experience of deploying them. And I think if there's one thing I would suggest from this is with lab services within, you know, approximately 30 minutes, maybe an hour, you can set up and create a full lab experience and start to work through some of those logistics yourself. Windows Virtual Desktop, we're getting there. We're getting a lot closer to giving you that experience so you can quickly stand that up. Um, and we want you to 
use that to do some of those compare and contrast experiences. So two great options and ones that you can use to construct the best solution for your uh, for your scenarios. What I was going to mention with Windows Virtual Desktop versus Lab Services is that secure remote access example will only exist in Windows Virtual Desktop. And that's a scenario where you have maybe a line of business application. You have users who need to access it. They may not be on managed desktops. Or even if they are, because it's a high security solution, you want to interpose a separate service like Windows Virtual Desktop so they're not accessing directly into your environment via VPN to get to those services. So Windows Virtual Desktop will absolutely be that specialized capability for secure remote access versus lab services that doesn't really co um, contemplate that kind of use case. Uh, so Karen, thank you very much. That was great information. And I believe, yep, so it leads into our next steps. Um, so again, hopefully, you know, those of you who might have had prior experience to Windows Virtual Desktop sort of pre-update or those who've never experienced it before, you know, hopefully there's some good information for you guys to give you a better understanding of sort of what Windows Virtual Desktop is and sort of where it is today versus where it has been in the past. Uh, for those uh, institutions who might be looking to to look at some sort of a proof of concept deployment in-house, uh, ProServeIT does have a POC built around Windows Virtual Desktop. The intent is to get the environment up and running for up to 25 users. Um, as far as tasks, we'll walk through helping you understand uh, staff and student needs and requirements, conduct planning and design sessions to help help define what the solution needs to look like, implement WBD for up to 25 users, uh, configure and deploy up to three of those MSIX-based applications that I spoke about so you can get a feel for what that looks like, as well as providing knowledge transfer to, to give you some comfort level to be able to support this moving forward. Um, as mentioned, we're going to answer as many of the questions as we can now. Uh, but if you have a question that isn't answered or isn't answered completely, or you just want to have an offline conversation, or you want to better understand sort of what the proof of concept looks like, I encourage you to reach out to us at cloud at prosurveyit.com and happy to spend as much time as necessary to sort of walk through these solutions with you. Uh, with that being said, uh, we're going to open up the floor to some questions. I know there's been a bunch here at the session, and I appreciate everybody being patient and letting us get to the content first. Um, but with that, Mark, do you want to jump in and maybe share some of the questions? Thanks, Bill. Yes, let's, let's do that now. But before I do, just want to thank both you and Karen for all that amazing content. I know I found it educational, no pun intended. I hope everyone else did too. Um, as Bill says, we do have a number of questions. We're going to try to get through all of them. For those of you that have a, have a hard stop, this is being recorded. So if you happen to miss the question or yours wasn't answered while you were still on, the recording will get sent to you. And at that point, you should be able to uh, fast forward to the end and, and get the answers. So let's start with the first question. Um, this question comes from Stephanie, and it's a question regarding images. For those already using a remote desktop platform, what is your recommendation for images? Move them or build new? Good question. And, and to be honest, I don't think there's a definitive one or the other uh, path forward. It, it largely depends on what your end objectives are. Uh, for those who are looking to get up and running in a, a quick fashion, again, you are, able to leverage, you are able to leverage existing desktops that you have defined. So if you already have images built to support particular user communities or, or subsets of, of your overall staffing and want to be able to, to leverage them to get up and running in a quick fashion, then you can port or import those existing uh, images to get you off the ground. 
Uh, for those who are looking at taking a more of a slow and measured approach, but want to future-proof themselves as much as possible, I'd probably recommend starting with a clean image and looking at something like an MSIX attach, app attach, as it gives you the most flexibility moving forward. Um, like I said, for organizations that this is sort of a, a clear win for them and they know this is something they want to pursue, I think taking the more measured approach makes sense. But if you want to, like I said, get up and running quick, start to kick the tires, understand what the technology looks and feels like and get a sense as to what the end user experience is like, absolutely nothing wrong with leveraging the existing images. And as mentioned, you know, through that FSLogic acquisition, you know, if you do have an overburdened image that you're leveraging today, you can, again, use those app masking features to sort of bury the applications that aren't relevant to each user as they log in. So. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Um, Phil asks, are there provisions in place to protect users against a noisy neighbor situation where one session is consuming all of the resources on the host VM? Good question. Um, so yes, there's a couple different ways in which this can be tackled. Um, one, as I sort of alluded to as part of the, the discussion, so we are, have the ability to build multiple host pools. Uh, so basically this is a predefined um, bucket of VMs with, with common hardware attributes. Um, so again, if we know that, let's say we have a bunch of office workers and all they're gonna do is work in office all day long, the type of, of utilization we're going to see from those users are easily predicted, and we can therefore sort of build to, to a comfortable scale without having to really worry about that whole noisy neighbor scenario. If you have a user community with some level of volatility where you don't necessarily know what their utilization is going to be going to look like based off of what they're doing at any given point in time, we have a couple different ways in which we can manage that. So one is we build a, a separate host pool with uh, a lower prescribed user density, um, to give us some more flexibility on how we manage those users. Um, the other thing is when we, we look at scaling in, in WVD, we have a couple different ways in which we scale. Um, so I know we talked about scale sort of multiple places throughout the presentation, but didn't really go into a great deal of depth. But when we look at auto scaling for Windows Virtual Desktop, you have the ability to either scale up or scale out. Um, so it's basically depth or breadth um, scaling. And typically the way that the scaling works is either based off of a concurrent number of users or an actual resource utilization scenario. Um, so if we're going depth first, we're basically we're stacking, you know, a bunch of users on one VM until we get to let's say 80% utilization on that VM. We then spin up the next VM and start to allocate users to that second VM. This gives us immediate density for our users. It's our most economical approach, but obviously you're, you're stacking users from from the get-go, which you know, has some constraints. Our breadth mode allows you to basically spin up a larger pool of VMs and allocate one user per VM until they all have a single user and then start up on the second user per VM as well. So we're able to sort of run you know, wide versus deep. Because of the way that we do user allocation based off of, of resources, if we do find that there's a user who's over consuming a large amount of resources, naturally any subsequent users are going to be allocated to other VMs as this, this initial VM is gonna be over allocated or over consumed. It's not ideal, but I, you know, if a user does find that their experience is not optimal, maybe because there is a user who is, you know, to your point, sort of a noisy neighbor, logging out and logging back in immediately, they're going to maintain their existing session because again, all of their, their personal data is being stored in those separate VHD files, but they're gonna be allocated to a second VM that's not hit that resource um, threshold. Um, so you can't necessarily outright prevent that noisy neighbor scenario, but at least you can easily remediate or address that. Hopefully that's, that's a sufficient answer for that. Again, I want to talk deeper, happy to have those conversations. 
Excellent answer, Bill. Thank you. Um, David asks, if an educational institution has Microsoft 365 A3 or A5 student use benefits, will they need to purchase Azure Windows virtual desktop for each student slash faculty member? So if they already have the student use benefit, they are entitled to, they have the license entitlement required for, for WVD. So outside of the Azure consumption for the infrastructure itself, there should be no additional license requirements uh, in that scenario. Excellent. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we've got a couple more. Um, Gilberto asks, do I need to create a DC in Azure or use AD, uh, um, AD as a service in order to use lab services? Or syncing AD um, DS with Azure AD is enough? I'm not sure if that was clear. Um, so if this is a lab services specific question, I don't know the answer. I can answer that from a WVD perspective, but Karen, mm -hmm. do you know the answer if this is a lab services specific question? Bill, Karen may have um, left the oh. session. I'm all alone. Together. All right. <laughs> yeah. So Karen, to, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I said, if this is a, a WVD solution, you don't need to deploy a domain controller in Azure. You can leverage on-prem Active Directory, although you could also deploy a domain controller in Azure, or you can leverage Azure Active Directory domain services. Um, if we're talking specifically to lab services, I apologize. I don't have an answer to that immediately. Um, if you want to follow up with, with an email to cloud at proservit.com, I can absolutely get that answer for you. I just don't know immediately off the top of my, my head. And I see you're talking specifically to lab services. Yeah, sorry, Gilberto. But yeah, please email us. We'll get back to you as quick as we can with an answer. Certainly. Okay, so we've got uh, two more here. Um, Jason asks, are there further discounts, discount options for education on consumption, or is it based on Azure cost, the, the Azure costing model? So your um, discounter entitlement is based off of the actual Microsoft 365 or Windows 10 license. Azure consumption, there's no... Um, no associated benefits that I'm aware of for educational. So you're, you are paying based off of the, the base Azure costing model. Um, again, where you're seeing the bulk of your savings in that scenario is with your scale up and scale down capabilities, but it's the exact same costing as you would see for a commercial customer. Thank you, Bill. Again, for anyone that needs to drop off the call, feel free to do that. We'll um, forward the recording after the session, uh, a day or so from now, once we get it all packaged up. We have a couple more. Um, a question from Jean-Michel. What is the need for, to keep VMs online? Can't they just turn them on as a request comes in from a user? So yes. Um, so basically what we have is, is something called auto-scaling. Um, so basically when we, we build the environment, so basically what ends up happening is we predefine what our host pool is going to look like. Um, so we know we're maybe going to support a 1,000 students in a given host pool. So we figure what that user density looks like. We pre-provision the entire host pool farm. So maybe, you know, for simplicity's sake, we're going to do uh, 50 users per, per VM, and it's 1,000 users, so we need 20 VMs in total. So what we'd end up doing is we pre-provision the entire 20 VMs and then turn the majority off. Um, you basically, you leave an initial VM or, excuse me, a couple VMs uh, up and running just to service immediate requests. And then again, based off of either user density on a VM or the, um, the resource utilization on that VM, 
WVD will spin up additional workloads as necessary. So they're all pre-provisioned, but they're basically in an, in a de-allocated state. So there's no cost associated with them until you spin them up. But you always want to keep, keep a couple desktops up or at least one at a minimum. I tend to liken it as a, to a, a pilot light on a furnace. It's just sort of there and it's always waiting and ready in case it gets called upon. Um, you know, it, when a user first logs in, you wouldn't want to have to go through the process of actually spinning up the, that VM itself. It just introduces a, a negative end user experience. So you typically want to have one or two of these desktops up and running at all points in time. But then you scale up as necessary. And you can also define, as Karen had mentioned, you have your peak hours and non-peak hours. You have a, a draining mode available to you. So you might say, you know what, during my peak hours, I want 10 VMs up and running all the time. So regardless of whether we get sort of a login storm, which you know you might be familiar with, we're able to support all those requests. But as we get out of uh, out of peak hours, we have the ability to drain users off. So we can actually have a user log out of a session and log right back in and basically not allow them into a, 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 uh, a desktop that's being deallocated. So basically, if we've got you know 10 users on one VM and three other VMs with running with one user each, we're paying a whole lot for those additional VMs that we're not seeing the value for. So in not off-peak hours, we can go through a drain mode where we actually siphon users off of those uh, underutilized VMs, shut them down, and then reallocate users back to that one core VM that's sort of our, our pilot light. That way we're able to provide the same level of service as required, but also reduce our overall cost. So you never get to a point of zero VMs, but you absolutely can get down to just sort of one, just as, like I said, that pilot light just sort of keep, make sure the infrastructure is available when a user does need to log in. Excellent, thanks, Bill. And the last one from Andre is the internet connection from the VM provided by Microsoft Data Center. Yes. Um, so you've it's one of two ways that you manage that, that connection. So it's either a site-to-site -site VPN. Um, and again, Microsoft does have a published list of, of VPN appliances that they support for native connections or uh, ExpressRoute, uh, which is a dedicated private link uh, between your data center and Microsoft. Uh, but it is a you establish that site-to-site -site tunnel and then all traffic between Azure and, and your, your uh, offices travel across that, that dedicated link. Hopefully that answers the question, Andre. Excellent, Bill, thank you so much for that. I think um, that does it. I think we've covered all the questions that came into the panel. I'm just checking lastly, um, actually no, Maximilian, pardon me, I'm gonna try this again. Maximilianial, I think I said that right, um, would love to hear Active Directory integrates with Windows Virtual Desktop. I think you touched on that a little, but if you wanna add anything else to it, Bill, feel free. Yeah. Absolutely. So there is a dependency on Active Directory or Azure Active Directory Domain Services, which isn't a mouthful at all. Um, so each of the, the workstations and the users are Active Directory objects. Um, so as Karen mentioned or, or sort of showcased in her, her demo piece, you first log in using Azure Active Directory credentials to get you into the into the um, the user management panel or, or sort of the, the um, I'm losing my words. <laughs> Basically, you're, it's getting you to the home page where you actually can select your, your session desktop or your applications. But once you actually click on a desktop or an application, the VM itself is tied to Active Directory and the user authenticates against Active Directory. So you do have a requirement for Active Directory, or if you've chosen to extend Active Directory to Azure Active Directory Domain Services or ADDDS, another big acronym, um, you can leverage that as well, but you do have a requirement for domain domain services in some form or fashion today because that's where the workstations join. Microsoft is working on an Azure Active Directory only uh, incarnation of this, 
but we don't have a, a date uh, for, the, for that targeted yet. So at the moment, you absolutely require Active Directory as a foundation for, for all of this. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. And Chris snuck one more in while you were answering. So hopefully you can take this one on too, Bill. Sure. Um, Chris wants to have an idea, asks if you can share an idea of what bandwidth is required for each um, Windows Virtual Desktop. Yeah, so there's actually a, a chart of bandwidth requirements based off of user types. So again, whether it's heavy, medium, or light load, I don't remember the URL for that immediately off the top of my head. Um, but if you want to just send us an email at cloud at proservit.com, I'll dig up that link and then I can share that with you. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, there, there's actually good published information on sort of what the expected bandwidth is. Amazing. Thank you, Bill. So that does actually wrap up the questions. There aren't any more in the panel. I want to thank everybody for posting those questions. I'd also like to thank everyone for joining today. I think uh, we'd all agree that Bill and Karen did a fantastic job. If you're, if you have any further questions or others come up after the event, don't hesitate. You can always email us at cloud at proservit.com, as Bill has mentioned a couple of times. We'd be happy to answer those thing, uh, those questions for you. At this point, I'd like to take an, take the opportunity to thank everyone for joining, Bill and Karen for the incredible information that they shared, and would like to wish everyone a safe and healthy rest of the day and look forward to hopefully um, hosting a couple more webinars where you might be able to attend. Have a wonderful afternoon and uh, rest of the day. Take care and goodbye.